Hey, podcast family, welcome back to another episode. We recently had a patient in our OB high-risk community clinic whose maternal carrier screen had actually been delayed for a while, so the resident called the lab like they're supposed to. And not having a clear answer of where this test actually was and thinking that it may be lost, the resident said, well, look, let's just get a hemoglobin electrophoresis. We can tackle maternal carrier screening later. For now, let's just get at least the hemoglobin electrophoresis, make sure we're not missing anything. Well, that hemoglobin electrophoresis came back completely normal. That is, no abnormal hemoglobin was found at any detectable level. That's good, right? Well, it would be, except there's more to the story. You see, shortly thereafter, the patient's maternal carrier screen did come back. And the only thing that was found to be abnormal was that the alpha thalassemia trait was determined to be positive. Yep, so now we had a discrepancy. Everybody get that? So on maternal carrier screening on a molecular test, the patient was found to have alpha thalassemia trait. However, her hemoglobin electrophoresis was completely normal. So what is going on here? I mean, this is a complete discrepancy. So this ended up being a great educational opportunity, and that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. So what do we do when this is discordant? Why did that even happen? And which test is better? I mean, should we be getting hemoglobin electrophoresis? Or what about a molecular test, like in this case, the maternal carrier screen that actually found alpha thalassemia trait? Ooh, there's lots to cover here, and of course we're going to touch on ACOG's recommendation from August 2022 calling for universal screening for hemoglobinopathies. We're going to address the different ways that they say that that can be done, and then we're going to highlight the pros and cons of each. And at the end of the episode, as always, you want to stick with us because I'm going to give you my personal take as to what these pros and cons actually mean in clinical practice. Ready? Let's get into genetic screen or hemoglobin electrophoresis. Which one is better for hemoglobinopathies? Medicine moves real fast. We're here to help us all keep up the pace. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we get into hemoglobinopathy stuff, we have to review the basic need for a CBC with the initial OB labs. Get that CBC, right? That's part of the panel. A CBC provides a lot of useful information, like baseline platelet count, and it checks for leukopenia or leukocytosis. And of course, it looks at the amount of hemoglobin at that time. A CBC can also tell you the type and characteristic of red blood cells. In other words, the MCV. When criteria are met for anemia, and remember that that criteria is based on low hemoglobin levels 
per trimester standards. And we talked about that, remember, in a previous episode where we covered beta thalassemia and iron deficiency anemia as a coexistent issue not long ago. So go back once you're done with this episode and listen to that one. But the indices here are also helpful because they do help stratify what kind of anemia the patient may have, right? Is it microcytic, hypochromic? Is it uh, normalcytic? So all of those things mean something for the CBC. Of course, the CBC can actually diagnose the kind of anemia a patient has, and it can't diagnose a hemoglobinopathy at all. I mean, it has great sensitivity, but it doesn't have any specificity because you need other tests to help make that diagnosis, right? Any hemoglobin value that's low for a trimester standard requires additional iron studies, and that's what you should get. You should get serum iron, serum ferritin, total iron binding capacity. Those are all very helpful to make the diagnosis of iron deficiency anemia. And in those patients that are found to have low hemoglobin based on that trimester standard, but whose serum ferritin, for example, is greater than 30, which is normal iron stores, well, how does that happen? Well, you can't have low hemoglobin, but normal iron stores at the same time. In other words, there must be something else going on. And that's where looking at the MCV comes into play. But remember, all of these things are great for pointing you in the right direction, but it doesn't actually make the diagnosis of anything outside of potentially iron deficiency anemia because you can't tell if if there's a thalassemia involved just based on a CBC. All to say, a CBC is super valuable and is absolutely part of the initial OB panel, and that's what you should get. However, while it has great sensitivity for hemoglobin issues, it doesn't have the specificity, which is why you have to do other tests. Oh, speaking about sensitivity and specificities, I I got a Facebook message from one of our family members saying, hey, Dr. Chapa, I'm getting ready to do my oral boards. It'd be great to have a podcast on just all that data stuff, right? Sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, negative predictive value, accuracy, that's another term. Uh, And of course, odds ratios or hazards ratios, confidence intervals. And yeah, that's a really good idea. So I've turned that into our agenda, folks. So we can try to add that into our podcast calendar that we used to adhere to. And I don't think we've adhered to that in like months. I think we gave up on it. But we do have it. I I mean, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, And like this topic, this topic was not even on our agenda. But again, this happened in real clinical practice. I'm like, oh, yet yet something else we're going to bump in order to talk about this. Because, yeah, just interesting stuff. But I do like that idea about covering sensitivity, specificity, and odds ratios, hazard ratio, confidence intervals. Um, because we, you got to know what those are, and it's a good reminder. And if you're getting ready to do oral boards uh, coming up uh, in the fall, then I think it's helpful a- as well. So yes, I hear you. I got it. Um, while initially sounding kind of boring, and I was like, oh, statistics. But yeah, I-, I think there's great value in that. So I do promise to put that on the list. A quick reminder about maternal carrier screening. Carrier screening is testing performed to identify individuals at risk of having an offspring with some inherited recessive single gene disorder. That's the goal. That's the whole objective of why we do maternal carrier screening. Carriers are, of course, by definition, usually not at risk of them themselves developing the disease, but of passing on some pathogenic variant to their offspring. 
carrier testing can be performed either in the prenatal interval or preconception interval. Even though this is called a screen, it's considered a diagnostic test because it looks at the DNA level. So screening implies that the patient is asymptomatic and does not mean that it must be followed by a separate diagnostic test. All right. So I know we use that word screening and diagnostic test in obstetrics or really in any kind of medicine. And there is a difference between those. For example, you do the one hour 50 gram glucose test as a screen, and then you do the three hour GTT as a diagnostic test. See the difference? Carrier screening, even though it's called screening, they're being screened because they're asymptomatic. But even though it's called carrier screening, because it's looking at, at a molecular level, it's looking at the GNA uh, 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 items themselves, it is considered diagnostic, okay? So you don't necessarily have to follow that up with like a microarray analysis or uh, some other fluorescent in situ test. I mean, you can do that, but if something pops up with uh, as an abnormality on a maternal carrier screening panel, um, it's pretty much they have it. Right? We're looking at their DNA. So even though it's called maternal carrier screening, it's screening because they're asymptomatic, not screening like cell-free DNA is screening, and that requires a diagnostic test like microarray through amniocentesis or chorionic villi sampling, or screening like that 50-gram example going to the three-hour for a diagnostic. Everybody good? Because I, I think initially when this whole thing came out of maternal carrier screening, that word screening was throwing people off, all right? So it's screening because it's asymptomatic, but if something is found because it's looking at the DNA, not the not the phenotypic expression, but the DNA root cause uh, of something, of, of a change in the base patterns, it is considered diagnostic. Now let's get back to what we originally were talking about, which was hemoglobinopathies. Hemoglobinopathies are the most common monogenic disorders in the entire world. And every year, that global disease burden seems to be growing. As most hemoglobinopathies show recessive inheritance, carriers are usually clinically silent. In other words, they're asymptomatic. Now, historically, as we've just stated, a CBC with indices was used as the first screen for potential hemoglobinopathies, especially at, quote, at-risk individuals. However, we now know that CBCs alone can miss a significant percentages of thalassemias, mainly alpha thalassemias, just like in our patient example in our intro. ACOG does recommend universal screening for hemoglobinopathies during pregnancy. In its practice advisory from August 2022, the college reminds us that previous recommendations for hemoglobinopathy testing used race or ethnicity-based strategies. However, race and self-identified ethnicities are poor proxies for genetics since self-identifications with a specific race or ethnicity may be incompatible with the patient's genetic ancestry. ACOG goes on to say, quote, ACOG recommends offering universal hemoglobinopathy testing to persons planning pregnancy or at the initial prenatal visit if no prior testing results are available. This helps ensure that at-risk individuals receive counseling about genetic risk, learn their reproductive options, which includes pre-implantation genetic testing and prenatal diagnosis, and make informed decisions. Hemoglobinopathy testing may be performed using hemoglobin electrophoresis or molecular genetic tests. Now, we're going to talk about all these things here in just a minute, but it also goes on to say, 
that the use of non-invasive prenatal diagnosis for sickle cell disease with cell-free DNA is still experimental and currently not recommended, end quote. Now, remember, this was August 2022, and since that, there actually has been data that shows that cell-free DNA can actually look for sickle cell disease and some hemoglobinopathies. But it's absolutely true that the two tests that vie for importance here are hemoglobin electrophoresis and molecular genetic tests, all right? Um, Now, remember that when you order a pan-ethnic maternal carrier screen panel that includes things for uh, alpha thalassemias uh, and the beta thalassemias. Now, remember this, this was actually, this is how it tells you how when you're so busy, you just can't even think straight, right? Because I received a call from a resident several weeks ago going, hey, Dr. Chop, I'm concerned because this patient had maternal carrier screening, pan-ethnic, and everything was negative, but I'm still going to order hemoglobin electrophoresis because I'm worried about sickle cell. To which I said, well, wait a minute, say that again. She had maternal carrier screening that was all negative, but she didn't, but you're going to order hemoglobin electrophoresis to look for sickle cell. So why is that? And she said, well, it says here, it looks for uh, alpha thalassemias and beta hemoglobinopathies, but it doesn't say sickle. And then she stopped. Did y'all get that? She's like, wait a minute, it checks for beta hemoglobinopathies. Oh, never mind. Yeah, that's right. Remember, sickle cell is is a beta hemoglobinopathy. <laughs> so yes, it's in there. It doesn't say it's looking for sickle cell trait or sickle cell status, but it says beta hemoglobinopathy. So yes, the pan-ethnic maternal carrier checks for alpha thalassemias and beta hemoglobinopathies, which include beta thalassemia and sickle cell. All right. So short of it is we didn't get the hemoglobin electrophoresis in, in this patient because her indices and her CBC actually looked more like iron deficiency and she wasn't at a particularly high risk, you know, ethnic group. And plus her maternal ethnic screening panel uh, was negative. So like, well, I mean, if we're going to, we can order a hemoglobin electrophoresis, but the molecular tests say there's nothing here and her iron indices look like iron deficiency anemia. So it's totally academic, but it's kind of wasteful and it's not necessary. Everybody get that? But there is a time, and I'm going to explain that at the end of the episode, when a maternal carrier screen comes out positive. Now, in this case, remember, it was negative. But if it does come out positive for a hemoglobinopathy, there is a time when doing the hemoglobin electrophoresis can also be complementary, all right? So it doesn't have to be one or the other. Sometimes the best information is both. And I'm explaining that at the end. Now that we've covered ACOG's universal recommendation for universal hemoglobinopathy screening, mainly using either hemoglobin electrophoresis or molecular test, let's do a quick primer on hemoglobin structure. Yes, we actually touched on this on our previous episode, which was on beta thalassemia and iron deficiency anemia. But we're going to do it here again, so you don't have to go back to that other episode. Although that's a pretty good episode too, if I don't say so myself. Uh, And you can listen to that one. I forgot when I did that. Maybe I can look that up here in a minute, or one of you guys can tell me when I did that. But anyway, um, we covered that in the past. But here it is very quickly as a quick recap on hemoglobin structure. Remember that human hemoglobin are tetrameric proteins, all right? So there's four different little units here comprised of two pairs of two different kinds of globin chains, all right? So each is a pair of an alpha chain, and then one pair is a beta chain, all right? So there's four different proteins, two alpha and then two beta. Each globin chain is then associated with an iron-containing heme moiety, 
adult hemoglobin is hemoglobin letter A, and that's the predominant hemoglobin in children by six months of age and onward. It constitutes 96 to 97% of total hemoglobin in individuals who do not have a hemoglobinopathy. So, no, it's actually not 100% because, I mean, nothing's 100%, but it's, it can be as high as 98% that I've seen. But based on the data, it's anywhere from 96 to 97%. Now, this is accompanied by two alpha globins and two beta globin chains, all right? Now, fetal hemoglobin or hemoglobin F is produced from approximately eight weeks of gestation through birth, and it continues for about 80% of the hemoglobin in the full-term neonate, and then starts to decline during the first few months of life, and it basically goes down to about 1% by early childhood, all right? So hemoglobin F is about 80% of hemoglobin uh, at time of delivery, and that's slowly replaced by hemoglobin A, which is adult typical hemoglobin. But there can be some hemoglobin F fractions of about you know, 1% or so in an adult. Hemoglobinopathies can be broadly classified into structural hemoglobin variants, which are either qualitative defects in which the genetic defects gives rise to a structural less but more of a functional change in hemoglobin, and then the thalassemias, which are quantitative defects, all right? So hemoglobinopathies are either qualitative or quantitative. And in the quantitative ones, these thalassemias, that's where the genetic defect leads to a, a reduction, a change in the amount of the globin chain that's produced. So it's a decrease in the hemoglobin moiety. It's a, it's a drop in that protein. Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, if hemoglobin A is like 96 to 97%, uh, what the heck is the rest? Where's the rest of it? <laughs> well, there's that little small fraction of hemoglobin F, and then there's hemoglobin A2, all right? So hemoglobin A2 normally is in the human circulation, but it's less than about 3%. More than 3.5% is a big deal because that actually signals a hemoglobinopathy that I'm going to tell you about in a minute, and we talked about it again in that previous episode. But remember, basically almost all adult hemoglobin is letter A, Super small little amount is hemoglobin A with a little 2 at the bottom or a superscript, a subscript number 2. Uh, and then a very minor fraction, less than 1% or so, is hemoglobin F that's still kind of hanging around, all right? But if hemoglobin A2 is more than 3.5%, that qualifies as a hemoglobinopathy. When the thalassemia affects the alpha chain, it's alpha thalassemia. And then when it affects the beta chain, guess what that's called? God, that was dumb. I mean, that's the beta thalassemia, all right? Super easy. Sorry, I know that was weird. The vast majority of alpha thalassemias, like 95%, are due to deletion of one or more of the four alpha globin genes at the telomeric end of the short arm of chromosome 16. The remaining minority of alpha thalassemias are due to point mutations. Now, unlike alpha thalassemia, about 95% of beta thalassemias are due to point mutations that cause variable abnormalities in gene expression, all right? So alpha thalassemia is deletion of one or more genes, but beta thals tend to be point mutations, okay? Just a little bit of tidbit. If you're studying for your oral boards, that's kind of the minutia that sometimes they ask. 
depending on the degree of loss of gene expression for this beta thalassemia group. And here's a clinical pearl. Depending on the degree of loss of gene expression, beta thalassemia is classified as either beta like zero, where no hemoglobin B protein is produced at all, or beta plus thalassemia, where decreased quantities of protein are still made. Uh, but again, they're decreased quantities. Well, we just covered the hemoglobin electrophoresis type of test, but what about these molecular tests, all right? So remember that these are obviously DNA-based, and you got to know what you're ordering. Remember, ACOG, as of August 2022, said, hey, cell-free stuff, cell-free DNA, that's a different algorithm. That's a whole different analysis. We don't have that data yet, so kind of be wary of that one. Stick with the molecular tests, all right? So the molecular tests are the way to go, and that's typically what you're getting when you get something like a Horizon, a panethic standard. By the way, Natera is not sponsoring this, nor is any other lab. As just one that we know that we use by name, so I'm throwing that out there for a point of reference. If you're like, am I ordering that? That's typically what you're getting with the Horizon, all right? It's, it's called a next-generation sequencing, and I'm going to explain that in just a minute. All right, so here's the thing. With molecular tests, there's no one way of doing it. There's all these different methods. That's why you got to know what your lab is doing, okay? Because the, the one that seems to be most accurate is definitely this, these next-generation sequences because they have a lot of great capture and what's called a, a, a throughput. I'm going to go over that here in just a minute. But the, the gold standard used to be uh, a type of sequence that was very time consuming because you could only get uh, one DNA sequence at a time and it took forever. All right. But now we have these next generation sequencing technologies that can run multiple things in parallel. So they're a lot faster and they really are super accurate. They're called massive parallel sequencing techniques. But here's the catch. Even though these are very, very good, they still go back to that gold standard, which was the traditional Sanger sequencing that I said initially took forever. Okay, so let me let me see how they tell you how this works. So they do the next generation sequence. Boom, they get a hit. Something is off. Then they take that target that they found. And then a lot of companies then run that through an additional confirmation test called the, the traditional Sanger sequencing because that's still considered the gold standard, right? So the short answer is, well, how is there a molecular test done? Well, they're, they're called parallel uh, sequencing or next generation sequences. And when something is a hit, when they find something, then they run, they then run that in isolation through what's called a Sanger sequencing technology. They're all very, very good, right? very accurate. And these results uh, are usually reported once that gold standard uh, has been validated. All right. So it's not just, hey, I think we found something. Uh, here's what we found. I mean, they are validated for accuracy. So I am a fan of these. I think they're very good. And I, you know, I've said it before, I am a fan of maternal carrier screening. Plus, remember, if you just do hemoglobin electrophoresis, which is great, you can miss some things Plus, that's all you get. It's just hemoglobin electrophoresis. But if you order maternal carrier screening, you're getting that. Plus, cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, and a list of other things in the pan-ethnic standard. Okay, I, I think that's fine unless there's something really off that you're looking for or there's a family history of where we can do the extended uh, panel. I think most of the data is is most validated for just the pan-ethnic, the standard, which is about 14 or 15 different items. Okay. 
So I, I think that's totally fine. And there is a published data on how these molecular tests compare to hemoglobin electrophoresis. All right. Now, I've already kind of laid out the argument there, but I want to show you what some of the data has shown here regarding these tests. All right, podcast family, the first study that I'm going to tell you about was actually done in men. All right. Now, no, I'm not nuts. Wait a minute. I know we're women's health care, but we're talking about looking for hemoglobinopathies based on electrophoresis or um, the molecular tests. All right. So it doesn't matter if, what the biological sex is, because the, it, the, the, the idea is here is how the test is done. I'm going to give you another study from May of 2022, just last year. That was done, yes, in women. Thank you very much. But even though this study was done in men, uh, there's still some valuable insights for us here because it relates to exactly what we're talking about, the performance accuracy of either hemoglobin electrophoresis or of, of a molecular genetic test. The study was published in the Journal of Genetic Counseling, and the title was Comparison of Methodologies to Detect Hemoglobinopathy Carriers in a Multi-Ethnic Sperm Donor Population. So everything in that title is absolutely what we're talking about here, minus the multi-ethnic sperm donor population, all right? <laughs> so avoid that part, but you see where I'm going, right? This is exactly the, the subject matter of this episode. Well, in short, what these authors did is they took uh, participants who were obviously multi-ethnic sperm donors. I mean, it's in the title. And then they, they sought to look at hemoglobin electrophoresis compared to a molecular DNA test for hemoglobinopathies. This was a retrospective analysis conducted using data from a U.S. sperm bank. All men underwent carrier screening for hemoglobin disorders, either with a CBC or with this was a retrospective analysis conducted using data from a U.S. sperm bank. All men underwent carrier screening for hemoglobin disorders by a CBC, hemoglobin fractionation, and molecular tests. Of the 438 tested, 25 of those, or 5.7%, were identified as carriers of at least one hemoglobin disorder by molecular test. All right, so that's N equals 25, 5.7% of that population studied. Fine. Well, 17 of those, or 68%, were missed by the other recommended methods. In other words, a CBC or hemoglobin fractionation. 17%. No identified carriers were detected by recommended methods that were otherwise missed by molecular testing. In other words, molecular testing picked them all up. The difference between these discordant pairs was significant. And so the authors concluded that hemoglobin electrophoresis, or CBC, can miss a substantial amount of patients who are found to have a hemoglobinopathy based on molecular tests. Now remember, they, they may have the trait, they may be asymptomatic, so they're fine, but the issue here is that they can pass this on to their offspring. So you see why this is an issue? It's not just an issue in women, it's an issue in men. So even though this was not our patient population, it makes the case that the, the better performer is definitely the genetic basis, the molecular test. So which one is better? Where well, if you're looking at better capture, there's no doubt it's the, the genetic test. Go for that. But remember, sometimes you want to see the expression of that. That's why I said these tests can actually be complementary. So I don't like one better than the other as a title. I mean, it's not really fair because they both have a role. 
But if you have to get one, get the, the molecular test as the uh, maternal carrier screen. Now, let's get back to obstetrics and gynecology. Last year in May 2022, researchers performed a retrospective chart review of 515 participants who received both hemoglobin electrophoresis and genetic testing for alpha thalassemia carrier screening at U.S. commercial labs between March of 2019 and October of 2020. In this pan-ethnic U.S. population, 8% of the participants were identified to be carriers of alpha thalassemia via genetic testing, and hemoglobin electrophoresis was abnormal for 12%. All right, so let me say that again. 8% of the participants were identified to be carriers of alpha thalassemia by genetic test, and hemoglobin electrophoresis was abnormal for 12%. So I know what you're thinking. Hey, man, what's the big deal? I mean, yeah, 12% were found, 88% were normal, but they're asymptomatic. I mean, you just said they are carriers of alpha thalassemia. They don't have it, so they're good. No, but you're missing the point. Yeah, they're good, but the whole purpose of doing carrier testing is to look to see if they have something genetic that they can pass on to the child. Do you see that? So, because I've heard that rebuttal, ah, well, if I'm going to miss it, but because their hemoglobin values are otherwise normal, then by definition, they're fine. Yes, they are fine, but they've got the genetic makeup that's not fine, and they can pass that on to a child, and if their partner's also affected, the child can be affected. Do you see that? So, this is why this is important. So these authors concluded, quote, hemoglobin electrophoresis is an older screening technology that failed to detect the majority, 88%, of alpha thalassemia carriers that were identified by genetic testing in this study. Previous studies also found that genetic test outperforms hemoglobin electrophoresis, specifically in alpha thalassemia carrier detection. Genetic tests, they go on to say, should be considered as a first-line screening option for alpha thalassemia carriers in order to identify more at-risk couples, end quote. See, now, isn't this interesting? See, because ACOG said, hey, look, do either hemoglobin electrophoresis or molecular testing. But if you read this article from May of 2022, published in the Green Journal, um, then they're like, wow, wait a minute, just go straight for the molecular test. But you see why ACOG can't say one over the other? Here's why. Number one, if the molecular test isn't covered, that's a big financial burden for the patient. And they're going to feel like they're, they're, they're not getting a standard of care if ACOG says you have to get the molecular test. That's why I can't do that because it, you have to offer what's available. So it's hemoglobin electrophoresis. Take that for what it's worth and then use that in the background of the patient's history, CBC, and indices. But if there's an option to do genetic testing uh, for maternal carrier screening, then get that. That's why ACOG says offer both because if you're thinking, wait a minute. Uh, if you're saying that one is, quote, better, end quote, than the other, and we've already discussed that, uh, and it seems to be the genetic test, then why doesn't ACOG just come out and say that? And the answer is exactly what we just stated. It's hard to say, just do this one, because some places may not have labs that do this. Some resource, some people may not have resources that accepts this. Their insurance may not cover it. So that's why there has to be this balance, all right? So hemoglobin electrophoresis or molecular tests as of August 2022. All right, podcast family, now as we get ready to wrap up the episode, let me give you my clinical take on this that I think I've already basically done, all right? Here's our clinical application. 
Well, first of all, as I've already mentioned, definitely get that CBC. You want to get that because that's part of the initial OB panel, and there's a lot of information that that CBC can tell you. So that's great. Despite its limitations in potentially missing certain forms of thalassemia, it still helps to identify other hemoglobin abnormalities, and it's a cornerstone. It's a foundation for diagnosis of iron deficiency anemia. So by all means, get that CBC. Fine. However, as the ACOG states, universal screening for hemoglobinopathy should be done either by hemoglobin electrophoresis or on a molecular level. I am a fan of genetic maternal carrier screening. I think molecular level is the way to go. But of course, that doesn't tell you anything anything about the expression of that genetic basis. So when iron deficiency doesn't seem to explain the patient's anemia enough, then even though you already know the patient has, for example, alpha-thalassemia trait by molecular test, go ahead and get the hemoglobin electrophoresis to see what the actual fraction of hemoglobin is because there's only so much iron you can throw on somebody who can't make normal hemoglobin. Does that make sense? That's why I said these are complementary. If you get hemoglobin uh, and a hemoglobin abnormality based on molecular testing, that's looking for the genetic cause, not the phenotypic expression, all right? So the molecular test looks for the DNA. The phenotype expression is the hemoglobin uh, findings on fractionation by electrophoresis. So if you're like, hey, you got uh, a alpha-thal uh, trait, I see that on molecular carrier testing, I get that. Uh, and your indices, we did your serum iron or TIBC, and they're not all that bad. But I got to see really if, if iron is going to be helpful or not. The only way to do that is to see your fraction of abnormal hemoglobin because there's only so much I can correct. So this is also helpful, all right? So that's why I said whether you get one or the other, sometimes both can be complementary. And the reverse is true. Remember we said with a hemoglobin A2 value between 3.1 and 3.5, that's called indeterminate by the hematologist, by the pathologist. And so that's supposed to be kicked over to the molecular side. So which one is best? Well, if you have to pick just one, then definitely use the molecular test and then use your CBC and indices and your iron studies to guide management. But if possible, and if there's something found on the molecular level, then get the hemoglobin electrophoresis to let you see that genetic defects, phenotypic expression. June the 4th, June the 4th, 2023. That's when we actually did the previous episode on beta thalassemia and iron deficiency anemia. See, I told you I was going to tell you (laughs) on June the 4th. Uh, man, I can't believe it's this same month. It seems like it's been forever ago. Anyway, I hope you found this podcast helpful. So, genetic screen or electrophoresis for hemoglobinopathy? The answer is yes. <laughs> As always, we're thankful for you, and we hope that you found this helpful. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.